You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Nat, and today we are honored to welcome Sandra Cisneros to talk about her new poetry collection, Woman Without Shame, and she'll be in conversation with Skylighter Elisa Garcia. Sandra Cisneros is a poet, short story writer, novelist, essayist, performer, and artist. Her numerous awards include NEA fellowships on both poetry and fiction, a MacArthur Fellowship, National and International Book Awards, including the Penn America Literary Award, and the National Medal of Arts. More recently, she received the Ford Foundation's Art of Change Fellowship, was recognized with the Fuller Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature, and won the Penn Nabokov Award for Achievement in International Literature. A citizen of both the United States and Mexico, Cisneros currently lives in San Miguel de Allende and makes her living by her pen. Thank you so much for being here, Sandra. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, uh, Sandra, uh, for joining us on the podcast today. Um, I greatly admire you and your work so much. And I just want to acknowledge how special this opportunity is for us at Skylight and for me personally and for our our listeners today. Um, We're here today to discuss this gorgeous book of poetry by you called Women with Woman, excuse me, without shame. And um, before we begin to talk about this um, beautiful book, and I can't, I have to comment on the amazing cover. It's by yeah. Flo. Yeah, amazing cover photograph by Mexican photographer, my good friend Flor Garduño. This is just a detail from a full figure so we're just looking at the top part of the photograph well it's uh, a stunning photo to match a stunning collection and before we dive into it i just wanted to ask you um how are you how has the pandemic years been for you well you know i'm a little i'm a little ashamed to say that i had a, a, a wonderful last two years <laughs> and because you know writers are not extroverts we are introverts for the most part. And I do a lot of extroverted work coming out and speaking. So I needed to go back into myself and to shut down and to clear my calendar and finish my books. I was able to finish Martita, I Remember You last year. And uh, this year I, I finished Woman Without Shame. So it's it worked for me to stay home. I'm so sorry for all the loss and devastation globally, but personally I needed to uh, be more cerrada, to be more more withdrawn from society, and to connect with myself. I, I find that uh, I'm better writer when I stay home. Right. Um, that is surprising a little bit to me, only because I feel like your work is, is so revealing. Maybe that's part of it too, right? You reveal so much of yourself and your history, and I feel like you're so vulnerable and so strong. Um, and just this title, Woman Without Shame, as someone that was raised Catholic <laughs> and identifies as a woman, that's something, that's a really strong statement that you're making. You're right. You know, that is something, especially for people who are raised with a, 
very strong uh, patriarchal religion, uh, it, it, it takes a lot. And I, I realized that I had a, I, I've had the whole trajectory of my life of dealing with different kinds of shame in my life. And, and I felt, and I still feel when I write poetry, that I'm writing from some truest, the most powerful place of my well of my being and it, it creates well-being i wish everybody uh and i hope that everybody will be inspired to go inward to do the interior house cleaning that is necessary uh to transform our dark parts of our lives to lose because that's what this book was for me it was all about uh redeeming all the dark parts of myself and trading them in and flushing them out and exorcising them and and transforming them into some place of illumination so it really was like a very long sitting meditation well it was very that all comes across in the book and it's actually i know it may sound silly but i felt very liberated as someone that's going to be 50 very soon oh, to, read, to read to read this to read this poetry. And um, I also think it's profound in that we're living in a time, as all three of us know, uh, of social media, of the internet, and where I think, especially young people are encouraged in this day and age just to show the good side, you know? And something that you put on the internet today will last almost forever now. And we have this footprint. And so I feel like it really, doesn't allow people um, the opportunity to change, to change our minds, to evolve. And I feel that your poetry, um, and it's actually one of my questions here is that this book feels a little bit, I could be very wrong, um, but uh, like the final part of a trilogy of your poetry, because mm -hmm. you start with my wicked, wicked ways, and then we go into loose women, and now we have woman without shame and that almost feels like a, po a poem just reading those three titles together you're right you know you're right about that that was something that my editor uh john freeman at Knopf was very uh, conscious of that we pick a book title that would help to uh create a trajectory from the previous books because i had many potential titles and uh, some of them became uh, chapter titles instead. And uh, he, he wanted, he was the one that had a little bit of distance and said, well, it really should be something that is uh, going to continue uh, the titles of your previous books and the previous journeys that your collections have taken you to. But I hope it's not a trilogy because I really hope that there's another collection after right. this. I hope it doesn't take 28 years. Uh, but uh, but you're right, and, and that's a very astute observation that this is poems from a woman who's now, you know, I'm, in, I'm 67, so these are poems from the last 28 years of my life. They're very different from uh, Wicked, Wicked Ways, very different from Loose Woman. Uh, but you're right, it is, a, it, you can see the, the, the roots of my being from those earlier collections. And I, I hope that people will read the other two and look at them. It's kind of like when you go to a, an art exhibit and you see a whole uh, lifetime series of paintings or exhibits of an artist's lifetime work. 
And, and I think poetry is like that, that it takes us on this journey to talk about the things uh, we don't talk about in public. They're really uh, moments of like uh, wrestling with your own demons and wrestling with your own obsessions and dealing with parts of yourself that you're, you're not proud of and you've got to wrestle with to, uh, to grow up. So I, I hope people see it that way as, as you have. Thanks for mentioning that. Yes. Um, and I do want to shout out, I don't think I will be able to find it, but um, your first book of poetry, correct me if I'm wrong, was entitled Bad Boys, right? And it was like a chapbook? Yeah, it was actually just a, a series of like six poems that we put together okay. and they were reprinted. They're in, those poems are not lost. They're inside my Wicked Wicked Ways. They were part of my graduate thesis when I was a, a student at the University of Iowa. So it was like the little baby book. A chapbook is a book that has a little staple on the center. It's maybe 12 pages, maybe six poems. And it was funded by two Chicano poets at that time, Gary Soto and Lorna G. Cervantes. And they had uh, teamed up to create the Chicano chapbook series, which published a lot of, of us writers when nobody else was paying attention and publishing us. So um, I think Gary put the money. I think Lorna put the, the labor or maybe they both put the labor and the money. I don't want to create uh, animosities between them, but they were the ones that, you know, they put the, the they put their the, the beliefs down that there was great writing coming up and they themselves published it. So I'm very grateful to both of them there in the acknowledgements as part of the team of people, because lots of people uh, help us to become successes in life. We can't just name one or two. It's a whole team that launch you to become who you are, no? Yes, yes absolutely. So, so my acknowledgement is very long. Uh, I was inspired by uh, a poet I admire very much, Jan Beatty, poet from Pittsburgh. Her last book had like, you know, five page acknowledgements. And I said, you know what? You can never thank people enough. So let me go back to the beginning of when I began writing when I was 10, 11 years old. Who started me on this path? And who do I have to thank for bringing me forward as a poet? Uh, so that's why my acknowledgement is very complete, very thorough. If I had to depart this planet today, I feel a, a great deal of completion in that acknowledgement list. So I hope everybody who had anything to do with making me a poet will be happy by the acknowledgements page. The acknowledgement page itself is pretty interesting, actually, I must say. So take a look at it if you're- No, I, I'm, I'm gonna agree with you. And this is a perfect segue into what my next question was, because in the acknowledgement, um, you say that you began your literary path um, in the sixth grade. And um, it made me think of a really famous Toni Morrison quote, um, that I'm sure you're familiar with. I'm just going to read it real quick. It says, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And that's very significant, but how you were in sixth grade and like, I, we don't have, this is changing, thankfully to you and, and this community that you've been mentioning, right? Because people have been doing so much for um, Chicano writing and writing from you know different marginalized communities, um, so how did you have the strength or the the spirit to be a poet? 
Well, because I didn't show them to anyone. I think privacy <laughs> requires privacy. Okay. Okay. Right. And 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 to be able to write poetry, you must be able to be able to say anything you like and know that it cannot be published in your lifetime. You need that safety of of privacy. You know, and if you grew up as I did with nine people in apartments without doors, except for the door you exited and entered from. You know, we were, a lot of us, amontonados in, in housing that didn't have doors in a lot of the bedrooms. Or if it did have a door, the door didn't shut the whole way because there was too much furniture, as in my case. So you you got to have, you know, when you're, when you're 10 or 11 is when you start uh, needing privacy. And I didn't have it physically. I didn't feel I could confide my most uh, personal thoughts to anyone. I was an only daughter in a family of men. And I was always the new kid in school, so I didn't really have fr a best friend. Um, so I think poetry was a way for me to have somewhere that I could uh, talk about things that, that overwhelmed me. And uh, I was writing for the most part when, <laughs> at that age, uh, poems about things of beauty, poems about sunsets and the wind and trees and nature. And even though I lived in the you know, grubby neighborhood in this Chicago, I was nourished by things of beauty, whether it was the Sundays my mother took us to Grant Park, or the flowers at the conservatory at Garfield Park, or the gem room in the Field Museum, or the paintings in the Art Institute. Uh, or the concerts we heard uh, and on Sunday in the Grand Park Banshell. My mother was very absorbed in, in making sure that she got her dose of art on the weekend because she was a frustrated artist. And she dragged all of us along. So to me, the things I was writing about were about the things that I thought were so beautiful. I didn't have words for them. And I didn't share them with my teacher. I just kind of kept them a secret for a couple of years. I got outed in high school, but basically I was a closet writer. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, but you've gone from being a closet writer to, I'm not trying to flatter you, but like a literary icon. Like, you're... How did that happen? I don't know. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> astonished. Every day I, I unlock my house and I go, how did this happen? Wow. It's I mean, so asombroso. You know, I, I'm the most astonished and the most humbled and the most grateful and uh, I don't know I, I don't know how I got so lucky but I have a clue and okay. I'll share it with you this is the thing that I always repeat every time I get a microphone in front of me because I want to teach all my listeners and that is in retrospect not when it was happening but like you know 20 years after I lifted my pen from beginning the house on Mungo Street I realize the reason why uh, it was successful and the reason why I've been successful is because I never created anything for a personal agenda. I didn't have an ego that was driving my, my um, dream. I was creating something with pure love, con puro amor y amor puro, on behalf of those I loved. 
And I didn't do it with the idea of becoming famous or earning money or winning an award or showing off or getting published in a New Yorker or, you know, earning from my pen, although, you know, a lot of that has happened, but it wasn't in my brain at all. I just wanted to write con puro corazón on behalf of my students, on behalf of my community, on behalf of the stories of my mother, on behalf of my father, people I loved. And that's the key. Are we working? And it doesn't matter if it's writing or running a business or being a judge or whatever you do, but are you working from puro corazón, from pure love? And and uh, if you are with no personal agenda, it's going to turn out well. I can... I believe that with all my heart. I can confirm that lo que se hace con puro amor y amor puro siempre sale bonito. Whatever we create with pure love, on behalf of those we love, with no personal agenda, it's always going to turn out well. And it may not take you to uh, what you think is success, but it will take you to something better. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for for sharing that with us today. one thing that I will mention um, is that um, House on Mango Street now is um, been out for many years, and from what I've read, um, it says you're maybe you're working on an opera. Yes. <laughs> so yes. again, on it for um, like several years. So, so really, I just kind of finished it. As you know, this this past week we just finished. Oh it. wow. And, and we finished it and we were um, rehearsing it at Chautauqua up in upstate New York. And we were supposed to uh, perf- have a, like a workshop performance of it. So we'd been okay. working on it for like five years and we finally got to Chautauqua, which is like summer camp for adults up there, almost near Canada. And the very day we were supposed to perform it, uh, Salman Rushdie was giving a lecture that morning and he yes. got attacked yes. and stabbed 10 times by a religious fanatic. So our show got canceled. Okay. And we didn't, uh, after all that week, we were all like, you know, stunned. Everything got canceled that day. So we never got to see the whole show from beginning to end. We just saw it in trocitos and little pieces. Yes. And But I felt such a calmness. Uh, I know my my colleague Derek Bermel, the composer, was so disappointed and shocked, you know, that this could happen there because we expect senseless violence to happen in big cities, and now it's happening in, you know, even uh, little bucolic centers like Chautauqua. And uh, but I feel this calmness and this firmness that the work is going to um, debut when it must where it will. I feel very confident about that. Uh, I don't know how I know that, it's just I'm very intuitive. Mm-hmm. And also because when I heard the singers singing the House on Mongo Street pieces and they were, you know, they were all the characters, you know, they were Rachel and Lucy and they were singing uh, Esperanza's parts and they were singing all the characters. Oh, you know, I, even now I'm getting chills. Mm-hmm. When you get that escalofrío and the hairs on your body stands up and you know you're in the presence of the light. And it was so light filled. By that I mean there was so much love and and positive energy. I said, oh, this is going to be so fabulous. So even though we weren't able to estrenarlo that day due to that manamac of, of, of horrific violence, I trust 
that you will see house on Mongo Street somewhere, uh, and and that the, and you some, maybe somebody listening out there will say, okay, I want to buy that opera, and right. we'll see it come to light. But it, I again, lo que se hace con amor y amor puro siempre sale bonito. So I trust because it was done with so much love, and so pure uh, intention, and so I trust it's going to turn out soon, eventually. Wow. Congratulations yes. on uh, beating that, and I look forward uh, to seeing you both. Okay, so the next thing, um, let's see, I wanted to ask you is that, so I hope, I'm a bookseller. I I sell books all day long, oh, eight hours a week. You. Blessings. Oh, all we, yeah. You thanked us in the acknowledgement too. You you thanked us. I did. Yes. yes. So thank I you. did not realize that San Juan de Dios was the patron saint of booksellers. Did I you didn't know, know that? that? No, I had no idea. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> wow. So um, so may he bless and continue to bless you. Thank you. Well. As I was saying, I hope this isn't a dull question, but as a bookseller, I've been really, and I've been one for many years, so I've hand-sold all of your books, and I've been um, really interested in the process and the way in which your work is published, because, um, for an example, you know, House on Mongo Street is available in English and Spanish. Um, we have this book, which I hope we can talk a little bit about, Martita. Yes, I, Martita. I adore this book and it is bilingual edition and it's English on one side and you flip it over and it's Spanish on the other side. Um, this new book is um, simultaneous, simultaneous English and Spanish separate edition. Um, and then your, your book, um, please forgive me the title. Is it Puro Amor? Uh, Puro Amor, you're absolutely right. That you illustrated yes. yourself. So yeah. you're someone that is really, I, I'm really fascinated by this process, especially as someone, you know, who is bilingual. Like, how do you make these decisions? And does your publisher work with you on this? Or do they push back on you? Because I feel like it's really um, revolutionary the way that you have chosen to publish your work over all these years. Well, in the beginning, that's a good question. In the beginning, at least, huh, the publisher did push back. We're talking about like in the early 90s when we wanted things, you know, in Spanish and English, or we wanted a Spanish title. Oh, no, no, that's not going to work. You know, so it was a pushback then. But I think that uh, we're seeing, thanks to the Latino book buying public, that we spend money on books, we do read books, and we will read books in Spanish too. So that's why it's not because, uh, you know, like I gave him this great idea. Hey, let's do this in Spanish. It's because people are buying the books in Spanish and they finally got on the program. They finally figured it out. And so, you know, uh, I may not have been able in the, in the early 90s to have asked to have the book like Martita, te recuerdo, Martita, I remember you, in, a, in an edition where you flip it over, they might not have been amenable to that. But now my track record of sales is pretty good, so I can suggest things. And right. actually this new book, uh, Woman Without Shame, I thought it was going to have the poems in Spanish and in English in one cover. And uh, I guess I was confused. And, and then my agent said, no, 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 it's two books. 
I didn't realize until I saw the hardcover, which I only this is the only copy I have that I'm holding. Uh, look how fat it is. Oh, I have one too. I have your twin oh. right here. Wow, isn't that amazing? It's so pretty. Yes. And it, it, you know, we couldn't have put the, the Spanish in there because it would have been too fat of a book. So I was thinking, that's a lot of poems. I had no idea I had had so many, you know, because I just write them and I don't know if they're done. Put them away, put them away. You know, I'm working on other things all the time at the same time. So that's why I didn't know until I got this copy a week before last. And, and I thought, that is a lot of poems. So this, this book is going to be in, in English and in Spanish, a beautiful translation by my uh, longtime translator, Liliana Valenzuela. She is a poet. And you could tell she's a poet when you read the poems in Spanish, because some of them, you know, I have to admit, they sound better in Spanish than they do in English. I was very impressed with Lily and her power of poetics and words. And, uh, and some of the poems came to me in Spanish and I had to translate them into English. So <laughs> I would have to run things past Liliana because my Spanish is not perfect. And, and sometimes I would make mistakes and she would edit them for me. But basically, uh, now that I live here, poems are coming to me in Spanish sometimes. And yeah. that's as it should be, because you're as a poet, you're listening to language around you. I talk to myself in Spanish now and my Spanish is improving. I mean, it's, it's never going to be as good as Liliana's, but uh, I, that's why I have Liliana to help me to translate the words to correct Spanish. And, you know, you especially want to make sure that the Spanish is correct because, you know, people in Latin America think that writers from the United States don't know their Spanish. So we especially want a good right. translator. And uh, I just feel uh, um, um, animada, you know, enthused about uh, having the Spanish come out at the same time because I live here. I want to share my poems with the public here. I want the gringos that live here to learn Spanish and the people who speak Spanish to learn the English and to have them both at the same time is, uh, at this point in my life, is, is very lucky. Yes. Very lucky. I, I noticed also um, in Hassan Mango Street in Spanish, there's a new foreword by um, an author I love is Fernanda Melchor. Fernanda Melchor. Yeah. How, did, how did that ha end up happening? Well, you know, um, uh, we did not have the rights to uh, this house in Spanish in Mexico. It had, it had uh, run out. And so people were always asking me, like, when can we, where can we get your book? They would have to bring them from the United States. Okay. And uh, finally, you know, I said, you know, I've been living here almost 10 years. It's about time that my book get reissued in Mexico. So my publishers were interested in getting the rights to all of Latin America, not just Mexico. Okay. And we wanted a, a new translation because the old translation is, if you if you know Spanish well, you know Elena Poniatowska's translation is a Mexican Spanish. Okay. And we wanted one that would extend all the way down to Argentina and, and across the ocean, and it would be a, all of Latin America. So, Elena, a estas alturas, at this height, is very busy taking care of her own career. And <laughs> I, I did ask, did she want to do another translation? And she, she said, she's very gracious, but she could not. So we had to find another translator. 
And uh, my publisher recommended Fernanda Melchor, whose work I did not know. Okay. And uh, and she did this beautiful translation, and she was a joy to work with. I, I actually, you know, uh, was more involved in this translation than I was in Elena's. I was um, very excited to see that she oh, chosen to do that. And I never met her. Have you met oh. Fernanda? Well, my gosh, no. I, she's another one that I would be very nervous to meet. But <laughs> no, that's so nice. I, I she's really Mekaibian. I like her. I met her like only on a you know through a phone call, and we worked together through email on the translations. But she was muy um, amable, very kind and open. And she wasn't terca, like when I would say, well, I don't know about this trans, this word. Is that the word you would use? She right. was open. And if I made mistakes, because I made a lot of mistakes, I would say, well, couldn't you say it like this? She said, well, no, that's not how it's said. You know, yeah. so she was muy, muy uh, generosa, very generous and and very uh, uh, kind, as kind as I keep using that word, but she is a very nice person. And I was looking forward to meeting her. We have not met yet, pero ojalá soon. Hopefully soon. Um, she's a, a brilliant writer, and I just think it's a perfect pairing, the two of you. So I'm so happy to see that. Um, I just have a few more questions for you, if that if that's okay. Sure. Um, your work, we've touched on it a little bit, but I feel, and I hope I'm not getting too personal talking about myself, but I feel really like your book, your books, and your work have been kind of like a, a roadmap for me. Like I remember the first time I read your work, I was in college. I, I know a lot of young people have the privilege of being introdu introduced to your work at a much earlier age. But when I read The House on Mongo Street, it was very profound for me. And um, I loved that. And then I just remember, um, it's, I, I believe it's in Women Hollering Creek, 11? Yes. Mm -hmm. That story? Mm -hmm. um, I gave that book to my daughter on her 11th birthday so she could read it. And that that story is very special to me. Um, and then you also have this poem about, um, you probably know the title better, but when I would like to jump in the river, but I'm like 38 <laughs> instead of 18. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, it has a title, long title like that. Something like I would like a uh, something about wanting to jump in the river, but I'm... Oh, I, I, I was trying to do my homework. I did write it down. I feel like jumping in the river behind my house, but I won't because I'm 38 and not 18. <laughs> yeah. And in this new work, there's one that, uh, there's many post-its in my book, but it says, at 50, I started to find I am in my splendor. Yes, yes. Well, that's the great thing, you know, about getting older as a woman. Uh, you know, all the male hype is uh, only if, you know, if you want to get plastic surgery and 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 uh, continually have to be uh, finding ways to stay young, then you can listen to all the male hype. But if you really want to come into your power, you could just throw that all out and start looking at yourself. And to me, you know, in that poem, I felt like me desnude. I was nude in that poem. I felt happy about how I looked at 50. I felt like maybe I didn't fit in my clothes, but I fit in my skin and I looked beautiful. And, you know, I didn't, maybe I didn't look like the actresses on the red carpet, 
but I look like works of art from other eras. And I just thought I was the most sensual and beautiful, and I wanted to celebrate that. So I wrote that poem. But you know, to put yourself in a, to pose naked is uh, takes a lot of courage. So of course I didn't publish it. I just threw it in my dead end file, in my poetry and process file. So, mm -hmm. And then when I was publishing this book, I found it and I said, oh, this is pretty good. I like this. I pulled it out. And you know, after I've had a, a decade or two, I can tell, do I like this poem? Is it done? And when I can't, I have friends like the poet John Olivares Espinosa, who's my personal poetry coach. And he's a great poet and he can read it and say, well, this is done or this is not done. Or, you know, this line I would cut. And I know him because we worked over 10 years together to trust him. So that's the great thing about, you know, having friends who are poets that you can trust. But I never can tell when I finish something. Or, well, that's a euphemism when I pick up the pen, whether it's finished. Okay. Well, I just, I just wanted to say in my, my long winded way that I feel like your, your career really template is not the accurate word, but it, like, I really feel like it's a map for so many I'm women. So happy like, to like hear that. Uh, I really want to illuminate a path for women that is not the one that we normally get and to allow women to uh, age and accept age as a very powerful because you are coming into your power with every decade. You know, the more you know yourself and you don't listen to what everybody else says is good for you is when you come into your power. And for me, that started at 30 because I felt like all of my, you know, of course, when you're a child, you're listening to your parents. And when you're a teen, you're listening to other teens. And when you're in your 20s, you're listening to society tell you what you ought to be doing at that age. You ought to have a partner. You ought to have children. You ought to please your father. You know, all this stuff. When I finally hit 30, I realized, what do I really want? And am I on that path? And I just better forget about having children because I can't afford to take care of me. So we'll just throw that out the window. That's not important for me. That's not important. So let's uh, work on having uh, some books in this lifetime. And I remember making that choice. I, I wavered when I would fall in love with somebody, but eventually uh, my destiny took me to some place where you know my my children are my books, and uh, I do not have any regrets about that choice. Some women can do both. I, I knew I could not because I was always alone and I just didn't have the money to be able to take care of a child and myself and to do a good job of doing either. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that because I feel, um, especially now, it's just like for women in general, it's like, you can do it. You can have it all. And no, you can't unless you have a like a, a lot of money and some sort of trust. But it's really hard if you don't have any money. If you come, you don't come from money, and right. you know your family is not going to support you if you make that choice. I mean, the choice I made, my my family didn't want me to to make this choice. They would have been happier if I had picked a more traditional role. Uh, it was. Um, incendiary to say, I want to be a writer. I don't want to have children. I'm going to move out of the house. You know, I'm the only daughter. And uh, so it was hard. And uh, I, I felt uh, frightened about it for a long time. I cried every Friday. I thought everybody cried every Friday. You know, I, 
I do it on Monday. I do it on Monday. Monday's the I day of the day. On Monday. I cried on Friday because I was home and, you know, maybe I was home alone and I had to write and I felt about writing like I had to spin strong to gold and it was hard work and I was scared and the house was cold and maybe I didn't have anything delicious to eat and maybe I should go back home. It was like a lot of doubts about the route I had taken and uh, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't have uh, some template as you're speaking about ahead of me with another writer. So I read a lot of biographies of dancers and of artists. But, you know, you can look at the dancers and the artists and the poets, but I didn't have any like writer that looked like me. Right. And so I had to gather what I could from where I might. Well, you did an amazing job. You are doing an amazing job and we I think I have a lot of angelitos a lot of spirit guides that have helped me just like we have people in our lives that help us uh you know we have to connect also with our own powers of meditation and our spiritual guides and I think I was I don't know I made a lot of mistakes women I'm just going to put put it out there I made some stupid mistakes and somehow as I, we all do as we all do yeah and and to me it's like how do we get up from those mistakes how do we get up from the disasters that we ourselves have inflicted on ourselves? To me, that is the greatest success, that we can find the strength within ourselves and stand up and keep going. And sometimes in my life, I have not been able to do that alone. I've had to seek out a therapist uh, to listen to me and to guide me because I've gone through some very self-destructive periods. That reminds me, I want to put a little plug for my colleague Erica L. Sanchez's new book, Crime sure, in the yes. mm -hmm. I believed it and I really like this book because she talks about a lot of things we don't talk about as Latinas, like depression, seeking help uh, and going to a therapist. And she had very severe depression. Mine looks like gentle compared to hers. But you know, she it's, it's really great that we document our dark moments in our lives because it can help someone else that's going through yes. that time. And I appreciate Erica as a being so honest in her writing about her, her dark nights of the soul. So, you know, she made a lot of mistakes. She writes about them too. And I think we have to be upfront as writers to talk about, you know, people only see our awards, but yeah. they, don't, they don't know the disastrous chapters in our lives when we really made bad mistakes, bad choices, and uh, detoured away from our destino. Well, I have one final question for you because I could hear your little babies barking in the background. And oh my uh, gosh. that's because a big palm branch fell off the palm tree. Uh -huh. And every time a palm branch falls, they bark. Well, we started this podcast off as I'm saying, I'm in Los Angeles, you're in Mexico. Um, as a Chicana, as maybe for a lot of people listening that are children of immigrants, you have gone south and done, and done something that in my mind, I imagine, but I can't picture me actually doing it. And so I'm wondering if you could, in closing, speak on that. And then you just mentioned your angelitos. Do you feel closer to them now that you're in Mexico? Do they speak clearer to you now? <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to be very frank, Elisa. That's part of the reason why I moved here. I had a spiritual uh, a moment where I had a, a voice. I write about it in House of My Own. I had a, a awakening, literally, woke up in the middle of the night and a mental message from 
I don't know from who, that, that, that moved me to move here, that gave me the courage to let go of my life in Texas and move here. And I've had moments in my life uh, where I've had a lot of contact with the spiritual world. Um, there's an essay called The Beautiful Unforeseen in this month's Orion magazine. So check it out if you want the trajectory of like my spiritual growth. But see, if I talk about these things in the United States, because the United States uh, community anglosajona is rather innocent. You know, it's a, that's a kind word, inocente, about the spiritual world. But Mexico is not, and cultures like the indigenous cultures in the United States and the uh, people of color in the world, India, Africa, were more connected with the spiritual world. And uh, I feel that I moved south so that I could learn an apprentice at this phase in my life, at this last part of my life, to uh, grow spiritually, to be more conscious of my spiritual gifts. And I'm not talking about religion when I say spiritual. I'm talking about our own uh, powers and uh, abilities to use our intuition, to connect with our own uh, higher self. In some cases, for some people, it's like connecting with uh, this, this departed. And with some people, it's just with connecting with our own highest self. So, you know, you can be an atheist and still connect with your highest self. Uh, so for me, in my case, I've just had a lot of experiences that with paranormal and, uh, and paranormal is normal to me. And now I'm living in some place if I talk about it and say, you know what, I had this voice that came to me. People look at me and say, yeah, you know, that happened to me last week, too. <laughs> So it's really nice to be normal with the paranormal because, you know, here in Mexico, we don't abandon the dead, the difuntos. I like that they're called uh, the, the fieles difuntos, the faithful dead. Mm -hmm. And there's a faithfulness to and a connection that goes back to our indigenous roots uh, with uh, living alongside the dead. Uh, I love that and not being afraid of death and uh, celebrating death and having a communion with the dead all the time. You know, that's so normal here in Mexico. And uh, the whole attitude of death as continuity uh, is a very powerful spiritual notion that we don't have in the United States. And I think I was called to be here because I feel I'm still serving my apprenticeship. Okay. I'm still learning. And I want to explore this in my next book. Yes, I'm talking about my next book. Already. Yes. I didn't want to ask, but since you mentioned it, here yeah. we go. We got the scoop. No. I got a big tour coming up, 20 city tour coming up. So don't expect me to pick up my pen. But my little antenna is out there already collecting notes for the next book, which doesn't have a title. Uh, and it is a novel, but it's a short novel. It's not going to be a nine year novel. And it's a novel that will explore these uh, uh, themes of the spirit and the spiritual. And I don't mean ma uh, magic realism because I think that's a uh, condescending term created by the white European world about indigenous spirituality. Uh, you know, we could likewise claim that the Bible is magic realism. I'll speak on it. <laughs> Disrespectful. So I want to uh, first uh, remove 
magic realism from literature in this next book and truly write in a way that I can communicate and create a bridge between los inocentes who don't have any experience with the spiritual world and those of us who grew up with the uh, spiritual knowledge in our DNA, in our culture, and in our practice. So that's something I'm going to explore and uh, uh, try to name and try to learn from in this next book. Okay. Well, until then, we are going to end with uh, Woman Without Shame, which will be out September 13th everywhere in English and Spanish at the same time. Um, I just want to thank Spanish, we should say, Elisa, it's called Mujer Sin Space Vergüenza. It's not Mujer Sin Vergüenza. It's Mujer Sin Vergüenza. Perfect. It's a great way to end. Thank you. So much. I'm sending you love with my little antennas. This has been an amazing opportunity for me. And we're going to throw it back to Natalie. Thank you so much. And hopefully you can sign books. Stop by and sign some books, some stock for us when you're in town. Ojalá. I hope so. Thank you so much, Elisa. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, you both. It was such a pleasure to listen to that conversation. And I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. Um, Like Elisa said, we're going to have copies at the store. We'd love for you to stop. Up and sign them if you have some time while you're in town. Um, Love that. Thank you so much for publicists, and I'll be there. I will. Yes, I'll email Gabriella. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It was so wonderful, and I hope that you have a lovely rest of your day. And we'll see you when you get to LA in a little bit. Ojalá. That's the magic word. I love that word. Ojalá. Ojalá. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.